Good morning. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Philippians. One day on the book of Philippians just doesn't seem right. But uh, Lord willing, we'll uh, bring out the important points as we cover this wonderful book. You'll have to pardon my enthusiasm, but as I say many times, I love the Word of God. You love the Word of God? And I love the book of Philippians. Book of Philippians, remember, Paul's in uh, prison. Actually, he's in a rented house, but he's a prisoner nevertheless. He's in chains 24 hours a day. It's not a pleasant circumstance. Awaiting trial. And um, the book of Philippians, uh, on the first level, is simply a thank you note. It's a thank you note from Paul to the church at Philippi for a, a gift that they had sent him. In fact, more than a gift, apparently other things. Maybe uh, clothing, you know, maybe somebody knitted him a pair of socks. We don't know. But he says later, the things that you that you sent. Um, and of course, if you were to ask any well-taught Christian and you said, what's the theme of Philippians? What would you hear? Joy. Knee-jerk reflex. Now, that's true. It is a key theme of the book. However, it is not the main theme of the book. Does that shock you? The main theme of the book is actually humility. And you're going to see that as we go through it this morning. And in fact, it is uh, climaxed in the middle of the book by the wonderful example of the condescension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippi is a familiar city to, even to believers. We love the place. The Philippian jailer, right? Wonderful story. And uh, the church had a really special place in Paul's heart. If you remember, it was the first place he went to when he went over to Greece. And uh, Lydia, the uh, seller of purple, she was down by the riverside. She got saved. He stayed with her a couple of days. <clears throat> and then as soon as the locals uh, saw what Paul was teaching, and in particular after he had driven the demon out of the demon-possessed woman, you remember, and it was bad for business, uh, they had him arrested and flogged. And it was kind of an auspicious beginning. But uh, then an earthquake and the Philippian jailer got saved. And that was about 10 years ago uh, at the writing of the letter here. So they've, they've been there for 10 years. And you can tell in the letter, he really loves these people. He really loves the church. One of the reasons is every time he went through the area or even when he was distant, they always uh, took care of him. They were constantly sending him gifts. Uh, here they did it when he was in Rome. They were praying for him constantly. He acknowledges that several places in the letter. He just loved that church. He felt particularly close to them you see deep expressions of affection uh, all over the letter but uh, like so many other churches even the best of churches there was a problem that was beginning to creep in pride spiritual pride it, it's, it's still true today you know we get a few victories under our belt right you know i witnessed to somebody uh i had a particularly good quiet time whatever you know Look how great I am, you know, what a spiritual giant. And it's so subtle. Uh, <clears throat> we begin to kind of look down our noses at other believers, you know, very subtle. And before you know it, um, you've got a real sin problem. And so uh, as in many of the letters, he's 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 addressing the positive aspect, which is unity. And you see that over and over again. In particular, he, he talks about a likeness of mind. In fact, one of the key words besides joy is mind. It's interesting in this letter. It's not an intellectual thing. He doesn't mean that. It's an attitude. In fact, in chapter 2, he says it, it's the mind of Christ. And we're going to see that. The mind of Christ. We need that. I need that. The mind of Christ. That attitude. That Brace yourself. This is it. That esteems others better than myself. That is not natural. But if Jesus could do that to me, have that kind of an attitude, boy, it shouldn't be difficult for me to have that attitude toward you. Okay, well, we're getting, we're getting ahead of ourselves, so we'll, we'll get to there in a minute. <clears throat> um, and the other thing, wonderful thing about this letter is because of the prevalence of the word joy, it's really wonderful, isn't it? That God uses things like letters to, to fill out his word. Isn't that great? You know, when Paul sat down to write a letter of thank you, God decided to get hold of him by the Holy Spirit, and he wrote a letter. <laughs> and here it is. And it's so wonderful because um, it's great to hear from a believer who's in tough circumstances, you know? 
Imagine if all the letters that were ever written in the New Testament were always when the sun is shining and people are getting saved, you know, and I'm healthy and everything's wonderful. Well, anybody can rejoice then. But what's remarkable about the letter is that here's a guy, he's been in chains anywhere from three to five years. We know two years in Caesarea, about another year on the ship and the shipwreck and everything and going up to Rome. And either written at the beginning of his imprisonment in Rome or or later, it's three to five years in chains, facing death, by the way, possibly, he doesn't know, and yet rejoicing. That's great. And here it is in the word of God. What a lesson for me. Huh? You know, if he can rejoice in that situation, I should be able to. <clears throat> okay, so uh, the letters divided into seven parts. You look in some commentaries, it might be six, but we're going to break it into seven, and, and I'll just say what they are, they are as we go through them. The first section uh, is the greeting and prayer, and it's verses one through eleven. And of course, we don't have time to read every word or talk about every verse, so we'll just uh, hit the highlights as we go. But one thing I want to point out right away is the first line, which we often read over without even thinking, and yet there's something in here. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. We've said this before. Study the greetings of Paul's letters sometime. There's always something in there that's leading up to what he's going to be talking about later. It's very interesting. One of the interesting things about the title bondservants here is that he uses one of two titles typically at the beginning of a letter, either bondservant or apostle. Now, why does he choose one and not the other and sometimes both? Well, invariably, when he uses the word apostle, it's to get across his authority. Apostle means sent one, but in this case, sent by whom? Well, by God. (laughs) He's reminding them who sent him and who he is speaking on behalf of in the letter. In fact... The troublesome church is what? Corinth. Yeah. The word apostles all over both letters. You know, because he's reminding them. They, because a lot of them are not going to listen to him. He says that in the letters. You know. Here, he doesn't use that word. He could. You know, by the authority of me, by God, I want you guys to be humble. He could do that. But instead, he chooses the other word, bondservant. Already, you see, he's introducing his theme. I don't know about you guys, but I'm a slave. <laughs> I like that. He's already setting the theme, you see. Um, <clears throat> I talked about his love for them. It, it's wonderful reading this letter. It's so pleasant after reading 2 Corinthians, you know, where, like he said, though I love you the more and, and you love me the less. You know, it, it's sad. Here, that's not the case with Philippi. Uh, for example, here, verse 7, uh, as he prays for them, he says, just it is right for me to think this of you because I have you in my heart. Inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness. Listen to this. How greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. He couldn't put it any stronger than that. He loves them dearly. <clears throat> okay. Uh, after the introduction, the second section is verses... Uh, 12 verse 12 of chapter 1 through uh, verse 26 of the same chapter where paul goes off and talks about his personal situation to them in particular you know what's it like being in chains how's my situation is it good or bad and of course as we all know he's he's rejoicing (laughs) he wants to let them know look don't worry about me i'm fine i'm rejoicing in the lord in this section he takes up the uh the kind of the mental uh question what should i prefer life or death interesting discussion a little discussion with them here considering that topic because he may be executed he doesn't know that and uh of course several times he says actually to be quite honest death would be preferable because it would be to be with my savior you see and of course the key verse in the section by the way philippians may have more memory verses per square inch than any other book. Uh, you can't read but a couple of verses and right away, oh, yeah, I know that verse. I know that section. Wonderful. And verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. Wonderful verse. And that's in the heart of him talking about life or death. And I love it when God breaks the rules of grammar to teach us things. He has to. 
if you just stay within the constraints of normal usage, you're not going to get across spiritual teachings. And that's not grammatically correct. I mean, first of all, for me to live is, okay, well, you'd say something like, uh, it's a wonderful thing, or uh, it's uh, a great, great joy to be alive or something. But he said, it's a person. For me to live is Christ. That is, that's not grammatically correct. You understand? But spiritually it is, you see. That's exactly correct. That is such a strong statement. He could have said, for me to live is to follow Christ. Or for me to live is to serve Christ. Or for me to live is to love Christ. He could have said any of those. He said, for me to live is Christ, the person. Man, it's a strong statement. Which reminds us of Galatians, doesn't it? And it's christ that lives in me i no longer live in the flesh but he lives in me he lives his life in me i don't live anymore my life is christ the christ exchange life a wonderful statement and of course he ends up concluding that uh even though uh, he'd be happier to uh, die and be with the lord uh he says it's better for you guys that i stay on and so i probably will you know thinking of others again okay uh, having gotten the preliminaries out of the way, he now really gets into the meat of what he wants to talk to them about because um, he's had reports that there is disunity in the body there and it, and it just breaks his heart because he loves the church so much. And so he, he opens the subject here and this is the next section. Uh, it's an appeal for unity. It begins in verse 27 and goes through chapter 2, verse 11. But listen to what he says here, for example, in 27. Um, after talking about himself, he then turns to them and he says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. You see the unity three times. One spirit, one mind, together working together you see for the faith of the gospel when when spiritual pride sets in and you get little grievances and gossip gossip by the way gossip is the child of pride you you stop working together it it interferes with the functioning of the body you become little islands you know it's it's a great way to stymie a church spiritual pride and so he's bringing up the subject because he knows uh, it needs to be dealt with here at philippi um notice chapter two he really gets into it now verse one therefore if there is any consolation in christ if any comfort of love if any fellowship of the spirit if any affection and mercy notice those that list by the way it's talking about the heart of christ uh the love of christ he's reminding them and he's putting it in such a way uh if those things are true i mean it's like what obviously they're true but he's saying it to drive it home you see because then he says fulfill my joy by being notice here it is again like minded having the same love there it is unity again being of one accord are you getting the message here (laughs) of one mind it breaks his heart that they're drifting apart because of petty things and inflated pride with no basis let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others. Here it is, better than himself. That's hard to do, isn't it? Just let's admit it. It's not natural to esteem others better than, than ourselves. But it's right. And it's the only way, as a church or individually, we're going to be effective for Christ. Paul knows that. Notice the emphasis on the word mind again, like I said. And, when, and, and you, people read this and they think, oh, mind, he means unity and doctrine. No, he's talking about an attitude. Certainly, unity in doctrine is important, but here he's talking about an attitude. Likeness of mind, unity in lowliness of mind. Everybody humble. That's the idea. That's the oneness of mind. Verse 4, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, first of all, uh, this is a difficult command, but... Since it's a command, that means we can do it. If you're a Christian, this is an attitude that you and I can and should adopt, esteeming others better than ourselves. 
it's hard but now i love it he's going to talk about the lord jesus next you know that this is a wonderful six verse section on the lord jesus christ and his great condescension he's going to use him as the example here and i love that it's wonderful how god in his word uses himself to motivate us to do certain things sometimes we find it hard to forgive don't we no everybody oh that oh well we won't talk about that then (laughs) he says in ephesians even as god for christ's sake forgave you you ought also to forgive one another see the motivation doesn't that motivate you brother and sister man it does when i think about how much god forgave me for the sake of jesus for me to hold a grudge and not forgive ah that's terrible john appeals to the believer he says beloved if god so loved us what we ought also to love one another if god can love the believers i think i should be able to okay well here he's going to do it now in humility and esteeming others better than ourselves by looking at the lord jesus christ and verse five here's that attitude again verse five let this mind be in you that's a command and notice it says let this mind be in you allow this attitude to come in which was also in christ jesus okay he's been there he's done that so if jesus could esteem you better and by the way when when it says that it doesn't mean uh in particularly in his case it doesn't mean we're better than jesus it literally means more important jesus esteemed you more important than himself basically he said uh, better that i should go to the cross and pay for his sins pay for her sins than he or she that's what he's saying and he did it man that's incredible if he can do that i shouldn't have any trouble esteeming others better more important uh, than myself okay then that wonderful section we're going to look at it in a little detail now verses 6 through 11 the great stoop and then exaltation of the lord jesus as an illustration as the example that should move us to have that mind and as we look at it you're going to see how careful god the holy spirit is in choosing his words in describing the humility of the lord jesus christ because in this section uh there could be a real tendency and as you know there is by the way of cults to dig in and deny the deity of christ you see and nothing could be further from the truth when you look at it there is a very clear statement in defense of the deity of the lord jesus beginning in verse six talking about the lord who being in the form of god did not consider it robbery or literally a thing to be held on to or grasped to be equal with god okay first thing the word form there being in the form of god be careful with your english form if we think about that we think about an out outside thing you know a form a shape that's not what the word in the greek it's morphe and it means the very essence of god that's his existence okay that's it's from and he's laying that out at the beginning to let us know that he never should have stooped he's god and he should have stayed exalted in the heavens worshiped obeyed honored glorified and that's it that should be end of story being in the form of god he hung on to that position of greatness and exaltation that he should have and then very carefully he goes on to say did not consider robbery or literally a thing to be grasped listen to be equal with god that's what he did not hang on to equality not being okay jesus did not empty himself of did he couldn't do that god is god but he laid aside his rights and his privileges as god just pause and think right there isn't that hard for us to do huh oh man you know to voluntarily abase ourselves to uh humiliate ourselves before others oh look at jesus man we don't even have a right we think we're so great you know it's all inflated we don't have a right to think we're better than others 
He, by his very nature as God, should have stayed in heaven. That's what he's saying. But praise God, being in the form of God, as God, he didn't consider his position a thing to be held on to. He should have, but he didn't. But, verse 7, made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men. Now, literally, it says emptied himself. And again, he's not emptying himself of his person, but it's, it's, it's talking about when it came to the rights and prerogatives that he had as God, he stripped them all away. He didn't hang on to one. You know, if we were to humble ourselves, we'd probably hang on to a little bit of self-respect, you know. Don't want to let it all go. That's a strong statement. He veiled his glory. And think about it. He came as a, as a carpenter's son, poor. He was uh, ridiculed. He was misunderstood. He was slandered. Ultimately, he was murdered. Okay? He, he opened himself up. He didn't, he didn't preserve one prerogative. He should have. But he didn't. Boy, what a rebuke to me. I don't know about you. Ah, oh, man, praise God. What a savior. There's a wonderful phrase. I think it's Jim Elliott. Correct me if I'm wrong. Who uh, prayed something like, deliver me from the curse of the grasping hand. Was it Jim that said that? What a st- that's a good way to put it. You know, this is Jesus. That's, that's what he's doing, you see. And what's he letting go of? His rights is God. Hello. <laughs> and and yet we, we we hang on to these little petty things that get in the way of serving God and, and they're worth nothing. God deliver me from the curse of the grasping hand. Let me be like Jesus. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. You know, we say, well, I want what I deserve. I want my fair share. You know what? If you got what you deserved. <laughs> yeah, I don't need to finish that, do I? Praise God. God doesn't give us what we deserve. Man. Jesus alone, emphasis on that word, is worthy of all glory, all honor, all worship, and yet he gave that up to die for us, for you, for me. Voluntarily, he did that. That's what this is saying. Should it be a hard thing for me to give up stuff that doesn't matter anyway? Self-image, self-respect, you know. Okay. Uh, taking the form of a bondservant. This is wonderful. Here's that word again, morphe. It's a strong word. And what it's saying is, again, it's the essence of a bondservant. He wasn't a bondservant before. He wasn't a slave. But he took on that role so much so that it came from his inner being again. That's incredible. He wasn't just going through motions. He had the heart of a slave toward you and me. Who was it that got up after supper? Laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself, got down on his knees with a basin of water and washed the disciples' feet. It was Jesus. The last person at that supper who should have been washing feet was Jesus. But he was the one that did it and let me tell you when he did it you never saw any better washed feet than the ones when he got done i'm serious he was the best foot washer that ever existed really he did it from the heart you see when he got down there he didn't think these feet are icky you know and you know keep the towel between you and the foot you know he didn't do that he washed those dirty feet and they were clean when he got done. He took the form, you see, from the inside out of a slave, of a bondservant, from the heart. That's Jesus. If he didn't do that, he couldn't have died for our sins. Very nature. I was talking with a brother recently. We've uh, been studying the person of Christ recently is called Christology in uh, <laughs> theology. And we're just thinking about some of the, the uh, roles, the offices of Jesus. You know, every time you take any of them, whether it's king, priest, prophet, they're all, these are all biblical. Every time 
He's the perfect one. You need to throw everybody else out because they don't even hold a candle. He does it perfectly. And so he was. When he took on the form of a slave of a bond, he did it perfectly. He was the perfect servant. And when you begin to think about what a great servant he was, everybody else, forget there's no other servants. They don't exist. The term doesn't apply. Let me just give you real quick. Ten, you, you could come to the same conclusion if you thought about it. Ten qualifications for a, a great servant. You don't even need the Bible to do this. You, you could do this on your own. First, a great servant should be able to anticipate needs, right? Ahead of time, before they arise. You know, the classic is you see some uh, <clears throat> show, or you read a book about uh, some British lord, you know, and he's got a servant there. And, um, you know, the, the, the master says something like, you know, I'd like a glass of gin and water or something, you know. And as he says that, the servant's already walking in with it on a tray, you know. He already knows. He already, you don't even have to say it. That's, I don't know how real that is, but uh, it'd be a wonderful, you know, if you had a servant like that. Well, that's Jesus, you see. Think about it. We didn't even know we needed to be saved from hell. And if you told us, we wouldn't believe it. Praise God. He saw it ahead of time. Isn't it great, by the way? We got saved from hell before we got there. Huh? Oh, man. What a savior. He anticipated our needs. And that's the other thing. We thought we needed something, but he knew we needed something else. <laughs> I'm so glad he didn't ask me, you know. <clears throat> Second, he knows how to perform service. You know, there are guys that are servants. They don't know how to serve. You know that? They're, they're amateurs. In fact, it's kind of like, I wish I'd done it myself sometimes, Right? Well, we talked about on the foot washing. Jesus knows how to perform service. You think about it. So uh, uh, suppose you were given the task of uh, removing all of somebody's sins as far as the east is from the west. Where would you start? Let me tell you, he did it. Every single sin, nothing left. Praise God. What is it? Oh, the bliss of this wonderful thought. My sin, not in part. But the whole is nailed to his cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. Third, he's available. Good servant should be available. You know, well, sorry, I'm busy right now. You know, I'm doing something else. I'll get to that later. That's not so with Jesus. You know, if anybody should be too busy, it should be Jesus. Huh? He always had time for everyone. Poor old blind Bartimaeus over there, you know. Son of David, have mercy on me. Everybody says, shut up, be quiet. Don't disturb him. You know, he's busy. Whole crowd comes to a screeching halt because Jesus stops and goes over and takes care of this little poor, uh, miserable beggar. That's Jesus. Never too busy. He's available. He happened to be available to come and die for my sins. You know, it's some funny verses. People uh, read them and they say, what does that mean? It says, don't, don't say in your heart, who shall ascend to the heavens and bring Christ down? Well, that's what it's talking about. Praise, you don't have to go and ask Jesus to come down and die for your sins. He came. He's already done it. Okay? He was available. Fourth, he has to be willing. You can be a servant but have a bad attitude, huh? You know? You can go through the motions, but inside, it's like, oh, man. You know, I don't want to be doing this. Well, we've already talked, the heart of this is the mind of Christ. We're talking in the middle of this passage, okay? He already demonstrated his heart, his attitude. He's already left heaven and come down as a man, as a servant, as a nobody. His heart was in the right place. Willing, yeah. Fifth, has to be willing to do the most lowly task. What's the classic line? I don't do what? Windows. You'd think it would be I don't do toilets. But for some reason, I guess windows are more troublesome to some people. Praise God, Jesus didn't draw the line. Say, no, I'm sorry. I'll go low, but not that low. Because you know how low he had to go? We're going to talk about it in a minute when we get to the cross. Lower than any man. Lower than any person. Infinitely lower than any other person has ever been. Or could even conceive of being. Six has to do the most unsavory task. That's a little different. And of course, we come up with cleaning the toilets. Well, 
That's nothing compared to being a sin bearer. Most dangerous task has to be willing to, well, now that doesn't typically fall in the job description of a servant. You know, if there's danger involved, I'm sorry. You know, and then rightly so. You know, the guy's just there to serve, not to die. But if that's what it takes to do the job, then the servant had better be willing to do it. Eighth, needs to do a thorough job, not give it a... My dad introduced me to this phrase, a lick and a promise. You ever heard that before? Yeah, Charlie's heard it. A lick and a promise. I think the idea is, you know, like, like you give a sucker a lick, you know, and that's it, you're done. It's not complete. And a promise, you know, I promise I'll, I'll do it, I'll finish it someday, but not now. A lick and a promise. Don't give it a lick and a promise. What he meant was, you better do the job all the way. That's what my dad meant by that. Don't leave anything undone. Uh, this is associated with the most dangerous task, but number nine is he should be able to make personal sacrifices. You know, give up something. Well, we're already there in this passage, aren't we? I mean, he's already given up so much. And number ten, finally, he should be meeting a real need. Something that really is important. You know, not fluff. Okay, well, I think you get the idea. Jesus is the perfect servant. And let's use another word for other other servants because there's no second place. He's the servant, the ultimate servant. Okay, uh, then verse 8. And, um, <clears throat> pardon me, at the end of verse 7, first of all, it says, coming in the likeness of men. Uh, he came. That means he's arriving here from somewhere else. Well, it's from above. It's from heaven. I didn't come. I was born. Okay. Jesus came. He came from somewhere, from above, like he said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. In the likeness uh, of, of men. It doesn't mean here that he was only outside a man, but not inside. We know that from other passages. Clearly, he had the nature of a man. What it's stressing here is, is when we saw him, we just saw a man. You know? Here he is, God. But you look, and he's just a man. In fact, in Isaiah, it says, there's nothing in him that we should desire him. There was no, you know, he wasn't, um, you know, one of these guys you see on the, uh, you know, what, what's the um, fancy gene label, you know, with, with the, yeah, you know, with the guys and the pecs, you know, and all that stuff. And, the, and yeah, Calvin Klein, and, the, you know, not completely shaved, you know, kind of... Uh, Real nice dark hair there, you know, kind of a tan, you know, young Turk look. That wasn't Jesus. It says plainly. You look at him, he's just like an ordinary guy. Came in the likeness of men. You know, he's God. He could have come as the most handsome guy that ever lived. You know? Bodybuilder. You know, strongest man that ever lived. No, just an ordinary guy. Talking about his humility again, you see. <clears throat> Came in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man. By the way, it's interesting. A uh, little pause here. We use that word esteem back here. Remember, esteem others better than yourself. That word esteem just means to judge. Okay? To decide in your own mind that others are better than yourself. You make that estimation. That's the idea. It's the mind of Christ. You, you weigh things and you come up with the conclusion they're, they're more important than I am. That's, that's what he's saying there. It's interesting that in that section, Isaiah 53, it says, we did not esteem him. Isn't that interesting? What an, what an irony, huh? Here he was, esteeming us more important than himself, and we considered him nothing. You know, we made the judgment call, eh, forget it. We do that, people do that today, you know? Don't bother me about Jesus, who's that, you know? I'm not even sure he really lived, you know? He esteemed us better than himself. Well, being found in appearance, it says <clears throat> he humbled himself. Wow. I thought he'd already been doing that. But you see, he hadn't gone low enough yet because he had to reach me. And I was way down there. And he's not even close yet. Coming as a man, teaching wonderful things. If he's going to find me, He's going to have to go real far down. And that's what it says. Humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And think about what it's saying there, because we've been going down, down, down. We've gone way down since heaven. And all of a sudden, the bottom drops out. We get to the cross. 
all the way to death. But not just death. And not just a cross. Notice that. It doesn't say the death of a cross. It says the death of the cross. The lowest place in the universe. That's how far down. Way down there. Because that's where I was. You see. He had to go down there to get me. He had to get you. It's the place where this one, the infinitely lofty Lord of glory, would say, listen to this, I am a worm and no man. He was looking up at everybody. Despised by men. First of all, his creatures. He was despised and rejected of men. Abandoned by God, his father. Listen to this. Identified with all the sins of the whole world. All brought together in one person. Can you imagine? I mean, I have a taste of what a sinner I am. He was identified with all the sins of the whole world. Oh, man. And then punished by God as if he had committed them all. That's low. That's, that's, that's rock bottom. It was as if it was suddenly discovered that he was responsible not just for one sin, but for every evil act, every crime, every whispered gossip, every cold-blooded murder. And then God took lawful vengeance against him when he saw that. And yet, he had only always done those things that please the Father. Praise God. He stooped low enough to reach me. If he'd stopped any, an inch short of that, I'd have been still left at the bottom. And so would you. Six little verses. And these first three right here, there's a great distance spanned in that little short section we've gone through. It's an infinite gap. Infinity. They talk about looking at the edge of the universe with uh, uh, the Hubble telescope and so on, and yet they still haven't seen the end of it. And we couldn't begin to understand the distance that they have seen now. It's, it's beyond our understanding. And yet that's nothing compared to the distance spanned here between the glory of heaven and the bottom at the cross where Jesus died for you and me. And the point is, he's teaching us something <laughs> about humility here, you know. From the glory of the throne of heaven to the despicable cesspool of the cross. And it was all voluntary. In fact, Jesus was driven there by his own love for the Father and his love for you and for me. Well, praise the Lord, it doesn't end there. We've got three more verses in this little section. Verse 9, therefore, it's stating something that's done as a result of what just happened. For this reason, therefore, God also has highly exalted him. Woo! From the depths up to the heights and given him the name. Notice it's the name. Mine's translated correctly. It's not a name. It's the name. There's only one which is above every name. Amen. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth and those under there. I don't think there's anything left. I don't think there's any knees that have not been accounted for there. Every knee is going to bow. That's saved people. That's Christians. That's unsaved people. That's demons and that's angels. That's every creature. That's what he says. They're all going to, God is going to make sure every knee is going to bend like this, you know? Jesus is Lord. They're going to say that because it's true. And that every tongue, there's the other part of the anatomy that God's going to account for. Every tongue, not one left out, should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord, Master, Supreme One, God, Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Well, Jesus did all that for you and me. No wonder uh, he says in verses 3 through 5, let nothing be done through selfish ambition. Doesn't that seem petty now? Or conceit? Hello. But in lowliness of mind, like Jesus, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That makes sense. Well, the flesh cringes, you know, and flesh whines. Ah, oh, it's inconvenient. Well, was it inconvenient for Jesus? 
Oh, man, it's going to cost. Did it cost Jesus? I don't want to. Ah, there's the crux of the issue. Right there. You're right. And if you stop right there, then don't bother anyway, because it's the heart that's got to be there. Jesus was willing, and that's what makes it so worthwhile. Yes, it is. He wasn't forced. No man takes my life from me. I lay it down and I take it up. And so it is with us. If it's not from the heart, if it's not just a real, genuine mind of Christ from within, you're right, don't bother. It's got to be voluntary. Okay. Next section is exhortation and the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus. We haven't left the theme, by the way, of humility either. It's going to come up even in this section. Uh, I love uh, verses 12 and 13, by the way. Wonderful little pair of verses here. We'll just touch on them. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Oh, no. Salvation by works. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Isn't that great? Do you understand that? If you do, explain it to me after the meeting, okay? I can understand what he's saying, and, and it's, it's perfect, the balance there. If you do something to, to please God as a believer, do you know where it started? It started with God. You didn't suddenly, you know, out of the goodness of your own heart, you know, out of your basically good human nature, suddenly say, I'm going to do something to please God. I love him so much. <laughs> it started with him because he's at work in you to will and to do his good pleasure. That's where it starts. All good things come down from the Father of lights with whom there is no shadow of turning. But on the other hand, you're commanded to do these things. You and I, we have a choice. He can try to stir us up, but we can resist. There it is. There's the intermingling of the divine and the human right there. Just like the, the uh, uh, humility we just got through talking about. The scripture is so full of commands about humility and esteeming others better than ourselves. We know it's God's will. So we know he's at work trying to get us to that point. Huh? You agree with that? And if it doesn't happen, it's not his fault. And if it does, he gets all the glory. Okay. Um, now, he, he's going he's, he's to rebuke them again with an example of humility. Actually, two of them. The first one is Timothy. Um, he's going to send Timothy to them. And while he's talking about the fact he's going to send them, he figures, uh, I might as well talk about the guy here because there's uh, something helpful in this discussion of humility here. Verse 20, talking about Timothy, Paul says, for I have no one, here's that word mind again, by the way, like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. Notice that word sincerely. What he's saying is, Timothy, look, when he serves you guys, when he takes care of you, it's from the heart. It's not fake. Okay? That's what he's saying. This is interesting to me. He says, I have no one. Isn't that interesting? You'd think the world would be flooded by wonderful servant Christians that Paul could send. I have no one like him, he says. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. Wow. What a statement. I know what he's talking about. You know, pride can manifest itself in our service in a thousand different ways. Half the time we don't even know it. But it's lurking there. In fact, one of the, one of the most insidious ways is, wow, I'm such a servant. I hope everybody notices how humble I am. No, really. You're laughing, but it happens, doesn't it? Yeah. I sure hope everybody else is seeing how I'm serving, man. You know, boy, what an example of Jesus I am. Yeah, that's what he's saying. It's true. Self is constantly getting in the way and contaminating our service. And Timothy is so refreshing because Paul says, look, man, it's pure. It's from the heart. He just simply wants to serve you guys. No ulterior motives, no preoccupation with what are people thinking and so on. He just serves. It's the mind of Christ. So simple, you know, sincere. That's a good word, sincere, pure. 
from the heart, you see. Look, God is weighing the thoughts and intents of our hearts. He knows. You're not fooling anybody. I'm not fooling anybody, you know. You could look like, wow, greatest servant that ever lived. But if he sees inside, you know, <clears throat> I am a servant, you know. No good. And the other example is Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was uh, special to the Philippians because apparently he was a believer from their assembly. And this dear brother uh, is a great example of service. He's called simple things here, a messenger, you know, a gopher, in other words. You're willing to be a gopher? Just a messenger from them to Paul. And then uh, he's a, if, if far, as far as Paul's concerned, he says he's a minister to mine. He's just a servant for me. Servant for me, a messenger for you, a nobody. And he almost died doing it. That's what he goes on to say. Epaphroditus got so sick, he almost died. But Paul says, that's all right. He loves the Lord. He did it for you. He did it for Jesus. I don't know about you. I'm starting to feel a little guilty hearing about these guys and hearing about Jesus, you know? Man, servants from the heart. Okay, well, 3.1, another well-known verse, and we're going to move along here. But uh, we do want to touch on that theme. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. And again, he's going to say in uh, chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. It's been throughout the letter. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. And uh, I don't know how many remember that song that was out on it 10 years ago or something. Remember that song, Be Happy? Talk about one of the dumbest songs you ever heard. No, because there was no reason for it. You listen to the song and there's no basis for it. I mean, that's great if you can give me a reason to be happy. But if you just say, be happy, that's not going to do me any good. Tell me why. Well, Paul does, you see. Because it doesn't just say rejoice. He adds a very critical phrase. What is it? In the Lord. Amen. Man, that makes all the difference in the world. If, if I have an attitude in the Lord, how could it be anything but rejoicing? Huh? Jesus has already died for me. That's done. It's finished. I'm just waiting for heaven now. You know? Man, I should be rejoicing. That's why Paul was rejoicing in his chains. Okay, then, um, <clears throat> well-known section in chapter 3. I don't know if you ever noticed this before, by the way. This section on Paul in chapter 4, where he talks about he had everything going. He was a Pharisee. He was a Benjaminite. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. You know, Pharisee after the first order. He was way up there. And then he talks about how he's counted at all loss. You know the section, right? We don't have time to read it now. All rubbish. It parallels chapter 2 with Jesus. Did you know that? Yeah. And I think it's deliberate. There's a very close parallel here. And he's the fourth example to them, by the way, by, by sharing what he's about to share here. Because he start, of course, he's using the Judaizers as an excuse to bring up this subject. But when you read what he says here, it's definitely targeting again that humility of mind and that going down, down, down like Jesus did. Because he starts off with, instead of, you know, with Jesus, it was as God in heaven. Here he starts off with his possible reasons for glory, you know, and being praised and so on. And you know the list there. He starts off that way. And he says, but I've lost all that. There's a laying aside, you see. Now, there's you've got to be careful because there's a parallel, but there's a twist here. Because in the case of Jesus, his deity is not something to be laid aside. He couldn't anyway. But the equality he did. With Paul, all this inflated Pharisee stuff wasn't worth anything to begin with. It's just as well, you know, he got rid of it. But then uh, it's a downward descent. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss. He says before, this is incredible. When I had all that stuff, it's not so much that it was a good thing. It's not so much that it was neutral. It was a negative. Why? Because it kept me from Christ. And if you don't know Jesus today, by the way, that's what you've got to do. Because that's how Paul got saved. Whatever claim you may think you have on God, you know, I'm basically a good person, whatever it is. Forget it. You lay all that stuff aside and you come as a sinner before Jesus Christ and say, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. I don't even belong, uh, need to, uh, to be with you. You're too holy. But I know you died on the cross for my sins. Here I come, empty-handed, 
I have nothing to offer. Nothing. You give it all up. That's how you come to Christ. He likes people like that. He receives people like that. And that's what, that's what Paul did. Anyway, he goes on to talk about how it's, it's all lost. That thing was, that, that stuff was a distraction. I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's the most important thing to him now. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law and so on. But look, notice verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the, listen, fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. There's the bottom. He's died. You see that? Paul started up here and he's going all the way down there. But it gets better the lower you go. That's what he's saying. Why? Well, I'll tell you why. When we're up here surveying all that we are above, you know, that spiritual pride is set in and that arrogance. And I'm sure glad I'm not like that guy over there, you know, like the Pharisee praying in the uh, temple. Remember? You're not up there with Jesus. Jesus isn't around there. You can look as far as you want. You may survey all that your master over, but you're not going to see Jesus. <laughs> it's when the self is counted crucified with him. And I take my place with him down there, you know, and esteem others. That includes everybody better than myself. By the way, little clue to you guys. You want to become an elder? That's the first thing, first thing that's going to have to happen to you. God does a wonderful little trick in, a, in an elder's life. He shows you your sin like you've never seen it before. Makes it a lot easier for you to look up at the other people. And it makes it a lot easier for you to serve them then, you see. Anyway, when, when we're up here, you know, looking down on everybody, you're going to see a lot of things, but you're not going to see Jesus. It's when we go down, down, down. That's what Paul's saying here. To death. Self-death. You see? Pride. Arrogance. Gone. We find Jesus down there. Is that interesting? And we have great fellowship with him, like you can't have up there. But you don't have fellowship with Jesus up there. You have fellowship with yourself. You know, the Pharisee, he prayed thus to himself, you know. The lower we go, the better it gets. We shouldn't be surprised that Jesus said it over and over again. Whosoever will save his life will what? Lose it. And whoever will lose his life for my sake Shall what? Find it. Yeah. <clears throat> the, the, the disciples were arguing, you know, who's the greatest? What did Jesus say? The greatest among you will be the servant of all. There it is. And we take that low place. Guess what? We find Jesus there. And have great fellowship with him. At the bottom. Well, 12 through 14 of this is kind of like the upward uh, thing about jesus but it's not a self-exaltation like i said it's a parallel with a twist but he's talking about looking up uh, reaching for the the prize of the high calling in christ he's saying my goal is to see my practice like my position you say well that's impossible that's right what if god had given us something that we could attain <laughs> you know suddenly well i'm there now what you know that's all right you got plenty to shoot at until you get to heaven. Okay, well, we're, we're uh, pretty much at the end here. We have final exhortations here in 3.15 through 4.9. Um, you see the source of the contention in Philippi, by the way, possibly uh, where all the problems came from, seems to be, sorry, ladies, but it seems to be two women this time. It's Yodia and Syntyche. You, those are two uh, names you probably won't give your kids. But... Uh, they were, they were servants in the gospel. Paul says that here in uh, chapter 4, verse 2. I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the what, same what? Notice that word again. There it is. They got, they, they got a problem with spiritual pride now. They're, they're like this. And no doubt it's spreading. You know, that's what happens, right? Grievance starts. One person talks to this group of people. The other person talks to that group of people. And pretty soon, you've got a little crack forming right down the middle of the church. All based on spiritual pride, you see. And so I love it. You realize this is read before the church. Can you imagine Yodi and Syntyche sitting out there, you know, 
<clears throat> I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche, you know, to be of the same mind. Verse 3 is very intriguing. We don't know who this is. He just says, and I urge you also, true companion. We don't know who that is. And people speculate Luke, Timothy, Epaphroditus. We don't know. But it's a brother Paul could trust to help these women who labored with me in the gospel. You see, they're, bro- they're sisters in the Lord. But they're like anybody else. They, they're made of flesh. And they've gotten sidetracked because of spiritual pride. And so he tells his companion to, to help them, to work with them. You know, Jesus pronounced blessings in several of the gospels and he pronounced a special blessing on peacemakers. That's a real uh, high calling, be a peacemaker. If you know somebody that's at odds, then you can come in and help. You can save a life. I don't mean physically, but from being on the back burner for Jesus. Sometimes for the rest of their lives. Sometimes you can save a church. Peacemakers. Okay, finally, we're, we're really ending on this now. Believe me. Chapter 4, there's so much in here. But there's, what's interesting to me is there are three verses, again, that tend to be memory verses. And the first one is tended to be, it tends to be applied correctly. And the second ones tend to be strangely used. And I'll tell you what they are. The first one, verses 6 and 7, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God which passes all understanding shall garrison or guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Wonderful verses, aren't they? I imagine most people here have them memorized. And it's talking about all prayer. And it's a wonderful encouragement. It says, look, don't, don't be anxious for anything. Don't worry about anything. If there's something trouble you, lay it at the throne of God by prayer. All prayer. Uh, the next one is verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There's all power. That one's a little misused there. Memorize out of context. And, uh, you know, some dear believers, oh, now I can go out and start pushing mountains into the sea, you know, or buying solid gold Cadillacs or holding poisonous snakes and all that stuff. That's way out of context. Paul there is talking about himself as a prisoner. And he's saying, I can I can be abased. I can be brought low or I can be uh, doing well, spiritually high. Doesn't make any difference. I've learned the secret of contentment. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In other words, I can make it through all circumstances. That's what he's talking about there. And uh, the last one, you see these uh, often in little booklets or something as the three all P's of uh, Philippians 4. But um, it's verse 19, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. So the first one is all prayer. The second one's all power. This is all provision. And that's true. But in the context, you know what it's in the context of? Giving giving what he's saying is in response to your giving to me through the lord god will make sure that you're not shortchanged that you that you don't go and want okay that's the connection now it's not that god doesn't take care of us but here the verse really is tied to our giving to the lord and how he'll be no man's debtor okay well we went a little over but you'll forgive me philippians is a wonderful book and uh this theme the first one of joy certainly is applicable to us. Look, if Paul can be in chains, you know, here he's going on five years by the time he gets out. And yet here he is rejoicing, facing death and rejoicing. Then I think we can rejoice in any situation, right? But more importantly, I think, is this lesson of letting this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. I need to learn that. I think you do to all of us constantly to be coming back to that. Watch out for spiritual pride practice esteeming others better than yourself think about what that's saying do it he says let this mind be in you it's a command it's not an option and god wants it to be there man we could be great servants for jesus then you know be effective for him and the bottom line is chapter two look if jesus could do it not only can i do it i should let's pray lord jesus we thank you so much for your attitude, your mind, that looked at us, our sin, our plight, that we had carved out for our own selves, and yet you looked and said, better me than them. 
we'll never understand that lord jesus but we thank you for your great great love that took you to that point that started in the glories of heaven and brought you down to earth but not just as a man all the way to the cross where you could look up and declare i am a worm and no man and it was there that you found me and you found us hallelujah what a savior lord jesus we thank you for that attitude and we do pray you would help us lord we confess that the flesh gets in the way we confess problems with spiritual arrogance and pride lord help us to stop looking down our noses at others and join you down there and look up and be the servant of all we ask it in your own precious name amen